0: Welcome to Quarantine Creatives. I'm Heath Rosella. The vaccine is here. It's out there. People are getting it. I don't know, though. I am really worried that the mere existence of the vaccine has now tricked people into thinking that they themselves have had it. Do you get that feeling? I still, I guess I feel like the people I'm encountering are still being pretty safe. When I'm out on the street, people, they're wearing masks, but I don't know. I drove by a mall this weekend. I didn't go in, but I drove by the outside and the parking lot was full. It wasn't like Christmas time full, but it was definitely like normal mall traffic full, which was kind of weird to me. I'm like, who who's going to a mall right now? I don't know. I've said it before, but we've gotten very used to online shopping and curbside pickup and all of that. And I don't know. There's just no reason that I can see anyways to, you know, go to the gap right now. But (laughs) people are doing it, I guess. Maybe the vaccine is playing a role in that. I don't know. I just feel like mentally people are done and we've all got to remember it's going to be probably another six months. So hang in there. We got a long couple of months ahead. Liz Winstead is my guest today. I can't tell you how excited I am for this show. It was a really great conversation. Liz is somebody that I have admired for a long time. She's got quite the resume. She co-founded The Daily Show. She was the first head writer of The Daily Show. She also co-founded Air America, the progressive uh, talk radio station that you know Al Franken was a part of. It's sort of what gave Rachel Maddow and Mark Maron and people like that, their rise to prominence. Liz helped found Air America and was one of the hosts of the show. She actually co-hosted a show with Rachel Maddow for a couple of years. And of course, she's a comedian. She has a new comedy special out that was shot during these crazy socially distanced times. It's called Corona Borealis, a night of comedy under the stars. She shot it in her home state of Minnesota. And it's fun and kind of funky in a way. She has this very kind of handcrafted stage that is set up at the edge of a lake, and the audience is in kayaks watching from a socially distanced distance as she does some stand up. And literally, these are untested jokes because, you know, comedy clubs are closed and stuff. So she hasn't had a chance to test this material, which normally, obviously, you would do before you record a comedy special. But she's got her notes just on music stands in front of her, and you see her flipping through them and you know figuring out the material, which is really cool. It also features an interview in the middle of it. She brings in Councilwoman Andrea Jenkins, the first black trans woman elected to public office, and she represents George Floyd's district in Minneapolis. So in the middle of this, they just start having a conversation about race and uh, policing and community, and that's fascinating. We'll get into that more later today. And Liz also founded Abortion Access Force, which is a nonprofit that advocates for abortion rights. And this comedy special is actually in support of Abortion Access Force. So if you want to view her special, it's on Vimeo on demand. You can pay to rent it, or you can pay to download it and own it and watch it a million times. Either way, it's part of Abortion Access Force's website. AAforce.org is the website to go learn more about Abortion Access Force, and to download the special aaforce.org. And we talk about abortion, too. It is this weird third rail of politics and conversation, and, you know, people just don't talk about it. You're probably uncomfortable just with me doing this intro. It's a little funky for me, but honestly, that's part of Liz's goal, is to destigmatize abortion, to allow access to it, to allow conversations to happen around it, and to present videos and, you know, other things that help people understand it. So we talk about that today. We talk about comedy. We talk about this crazy time. It's a great interview. I really enjoyed it. Here it is, my conversation with Liz Winstead. I want to start by just asking sort of the general question about these last you know nine, ten months, however long it's been this this quarantine period <laughs> how has this yeah. uh, how has this time been for you uh
1: you know it's been i think i've I've been like everyone else it just uh trying to figure out what my purpose is to wake up every day yeah. which is uh very challenging i think for everyone especially creative folks and especially you know i'm a creative person so performing has been you know challenging if non-existent yeah. and then i'm also a consumer of music and dance and theater And so that has not been available either, right? So uh, any kind of outlets we all have to uh, find our peace have not been available. And then I started out my COVID journey in Brooklyn right at the height of the pandemic, which was this really incredible situation where you try to get out and walk in the world. And, you know, there was... Trucks that had been retrofitted to become mobile morgues. Mm. And so you were, I was taking a lot of that in. And then on top of all of that, my sister was dying of ALS. Mm. And so I came back to Minnesota to help be a caregiver for her in her final months. And so pretty, not great, Bob, I think as they say, (laughs) as the kids say. Uh, So yeah, just balancing, you know, and my story is not even unique. You know what I mean? Like, I'm lucky to have a job. I'm lucky to have my own health. So I feel lucky about uh, those things. But yeah, just kind of crummy, like everyone else.
0: Well, I'm curious too, like as a comic, expressing yourself during this time and not having that outlet. Like, have you you been able to figure out a way? I, I feel like so much of, you know, for comedians, like processing the news happens through comedy often. And, to not have that at a time where just so much was happening, you know, this this has been like the craziest year, you know, in a long, long time, I guess. And just how, how have you been able to sort of process everything that's been happening?
1: Well, I think the way that I've been processing a lot of it is the way that I process a lot of things, which is on social media. It's how I do my writing. Uh-huh. It's how I do my processing. I'll vent through threads. And so I did a lot of that. But the difference is normally when I'm, when I'm responding and gathering, I then in turn have a stage with which I can turn my thoughts to performance and yeah. not having that was super weird. Right. What about the
0: the part you talked about, about consuming art and, you know, dance and music and all that kind of stuff? Have you found replacement activities or, or ways to channel that energy?
1: I did what, you know, in, when I came back to Minnesota, the good news is I, came of age in an incredibly creative environment in Minneapolis, you know, where the music scene and the comedy scene sort of all exploded at the same time here. Uh And so there was outdoor, socially distanced sing-alongs and various ways to do that, but not to the degree with which I would have liked, you know, there wasn't a lot of like outdoor theater because people couldn't gather to rehearse. Right. Right. And so, I think that the closest I got to was participating with friends in a distanced way in backyards and, you know, around campfires for sure.
0: Yeah. I want to ask you, I want to get to the special in a minute, but you you do mention in the special that your sister passed away literally within days of of Ruth Bader Ginsburg dying. And I wonder just like that just feels like several weights on top of each other, I guess. I, I wonder just sort of your your mental state and sort of thought process during that time?
1: Well, my sister was somebody who was one of my, you know, mentors. She herself was a writer and a painter. And so during the one thing she said, as she was in, in her ALS, you know, before she lost her voice, she was like, one thing that terrified me the most about this disease is that my whole life is going to become about this disease. Mm. So I need you to help me through what you do. Uh, talk to me about your work and do something that you can talk to me about that isn't about my disease. Yeah. And so she was somebody who was like, uh, you have to go and do a special and do your comedy and do your art. And I want to hear about your process along the way to keep me sane and to help me feel like I'm still, you know, in, in your process. And yeah. so that was a giant catalyst for me to do it. Yeah. Well, you
0: described <laughs> the special too, as a catharsis and, I definitely felt that watching it. It was that kind of, it was that exhalation that I felt like we had just sort of all been holding in for months and just, you know, the the madness of everything that had been going on in the country with, with Trump and, you know, with George Floyd and all this. And it just, I don't know, we've all been stuck separately and it it felt nice to kind of, to exhale together.
1: Yeah. You know, and it it was almost like, do I even call it a, like, it's not a traditional stand up special right. per se, you know, because I'm a the venues aren't traditional. Yeah. I'm also just kind of like babbling at some points. And I even use, you know, cutaways of people just like looking at me talking because I wanted to, you know, capture like people just kind of staring and also me just like ranting and being like, oh, that's not even a joke, really. That's just a thing that <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm just mad about. And so, um, I'm glad that you felt the catharsis and I, I feel like it's rare. Like for me, it feels very authentic in the sense of like, it's raw and it's, I have my notes and you can see me using my notes. I didn't try to pretend I didn't have notes, Yeah. but it was a lot of our humanity. And the thing that I think is interesting about this time that we're all living in is we were all experiencing a thing we'd never experienced for the first time mm-hmm. together. Right. And there's certain aspects to it that even privileged people couldn't escape.
0: Yeah.
1: You know, you can't escape this. Um, if your parents were elderly and in a facility, all the money in the world couldn't bring you to be able to see them. Right. And, you know, uh, it, it was unsafe for anybody to be in the world without a mask, wherever that world was for you. And so when you whine about it, and your privilege privilege allows you to whine about it. I mean, for me, the most privileged thing that could happen is for you to say, I don't need a mask because I'm not going to die. Yeah. Like, to be able to have a social structure and a belief system that says that somehow you are exempt from death Yeah. is white supremacy at its <laughs> finest, right? And so for me, like, watching this unfold and watching these... People being so angry about simply adhering to a social contract that says, we're all in this horrible spot together. And if we don't comply with trying to make sure we don't get each other sick, we could literally end our species. And for people to not, to think that they don't, aren't part of that social contract is so bizarre to me. Like, I don't get it. Like, what kind of a monster are you? Like, also, you've never experienced any kind of oppression if wearing a mask is the thing you're mad about, or you can't go get your Slurpee, or you can't go drink at a bar. (laughs)
0: Right. Like,
1: honestly, I'm like, are you for real? And like I say in my special, I honestly think the truth was, after two weeks, these people existed within themselves and was like, I got to get out of here. I need a distraction (laughs) from me because
0: I'm garbage. (laughs) What do you think about where we are right now, where it's just like this crazy, out of control, you know, every single uh, state on the map right now is in that maroon. I forget what they call it, but like, you know, dangerous spread, uncontrolled spread maybe is the the category. Like, And, and there are countries like, you know, Australia, New Zealand, uh, South Korea that have figured out, you know, some semblance of normalcy, it seems, during this time and, and some way to contain this.
1: Yeah. I don't even like, again... I think for me, the thing that screwed us the most was that the experts were learning along with us and made some big time um, things that were true at the time, but then needed to change statements. And then nobody believed anybody, Right. right? So it was like, only certain people need to wear masks. You don't have to wear a mask this time, blah, blah, blah. And then people latched onto that as instead of saying, We're in an evolving space where things could change. So we all need to be learning about this because this is a disease that we're all learning about. Putting stuff out there just made any doubter, all the anti-vaxxers, all the the governments trying to put a chip inside my head or whatever, people just were, I feel like they were fueled. And I don't know how you come back from that to have people really think like, I need to be on board with this and have a belief system. Because you know, there's those of us who, Would like to trust the CDC and would like to trust people, um, but don't trust the administration who's like, you know, removed actual data from a website and replaced it with like, it's lies, fake news or whatever, you know? So, and then there's people who just truly don't believe in vaccines and have that whole conspiracy theory. And then there's people who believe that, you know, everything is a deep, a deep state problem. Um, So we're in a big heap of like, I don't, of mistrust. That um, I'm wondering what kind of people are going to dive in, put their toe in, get the vaccine and do it. I don't know. I don't even know who I am in that equation. It is kind
0: of weird to think, like, I'm not an anti-vaxxer, but this thing was kind of raced to market, it seems. And, you know, do we trust the administration behind it? And, you know, how many people should get it before I do? And, you know, and, and then there's this question, I think, too, of like, where am I in this priority scale? Like, should I should I be trying to jump the line or should I be really waiting my turn? You know, no, you guys all go ahead of me, please. Like, I, I agree with you. It, it's not cut and dry right now. <laughs> like, it seems like it should be a simple solution. But uh, yeah, just because of how we came to this, it's not.
1: Right, right. And I guess at some point, I, we all have to decide like, or if I guess if, if, if I watch those three presidents take that vaccine, yeah, then I'll take the vaccine. Right. <laughs> you know, if they're gonna do it on TV, Fauci, you know, says it's okay. I'm happy that healthcare workers and, and the vulnerable will get it first. And, and and I although it does scare me that the most vulnerable are getting it first and it's something right. that's never been tested. It's all it's like it's all so like, what is this world we're living in? I have no idea. Yeah.
0: And I don't know how we get out of it. I mean, that's like, everyone is so eager to get back to normalcy and I'm like, I don't I don't know that I'm ever going to feel normal again. I hope I do,
1: but like, I, I'm not yeah. sure that I'm going to. I know. And when I look at the joys of my life and what does normal look like now, you know, I'm from Minnesota and a huge thing here is the Minnesota State Fair. It's like 100,000 people a day at this fair and it's oh, like wow. the greatest thing ever. And like, is that ever going to feel normal for me again? Yeah. You know, I don't know about you, but like even watching movies where like people are gathered around and they blow candles out on a cake. I'm like, that is what is that is like, so not fun anymore, you know? And so, and even like in presenting content that you make now, you know, I run a nonprofit and so we're making like, uh, we have this wellness Wednesday that we do for the nonprofit and it's like, you know what if it's um, people exhaling at, in a yoga class and they're blowing? Th- you know I was like I don't want to see people without a mask right. in a wellness in a wellness thing right now. You know yeah. blowing exhaling in a yoga class. You know so what is like the new normal? I hate that. I'm putting air quotes around my whole body right now and wrapping myself in <laughs> and air quoting it again. Um, but you know I, what is the new normal and what is that? What is that? I'm on. I don't know. I don't know what a group of people indoors is ever going to feel like, is that ever going to feel okay? Yeah. And what does that mean for the creative state of how I do my work? Yeah. You know, I mean, I did this special, which was really cool. I was like, I'm going to do a show that responds to the world. So I built a stage on the shore of a lake and my audience was 20 people in kayaks for the first (laughs) half of the show. And the second half of the show, I gathered people around fire pits and finished it off by on a 19 degree night, you know. And so I did that, you know, and for me, I am one of those people that if the comedy club is no longer an option for me, I will trick out a box truck and create a stage and travel with it. Like I will do that and have an audience have audiences only be outside. Yeah. And have them be hearty and create spaces where if if it's at a drive-in movie theater setting, uh I'll do it. And also and some level what is the art going to be right. what is the freeing thing that's going to happen now if when artists have to create reinvent and reimagine the spaces where we can live and thrive yeah and you know for years we were all beholden to a studio system to networks to agents to managers and then and then the internet happened and all of a sudden people were making youtube videos and then social media and tiktok and all this stuff is happening so the control i have to respond to the world in the way I do has been put in my hands in an even stronger way. And so I think performers have to say, what do I do about this? Right. How do I do this?
0: Well, and I think the challenge too, like, you're talking about being involved with a nonprofit, like obviously that's kind of your day job, but like the comedy piece of it, you know, you can, you can go direct to your fans And not necessarily have to worry about the revenue side. I mean, that's sort of where I am, I guess, is I've been doing this podcast since May and just, you know, really having fun with it and having these great conversations. And, you know, as you say, being your own boss and being able to freely express what you're thinking. But then there's the part of it that's like, yeah, but where's the money in this? Like for all of us, you know what I mean? Anyone on the creative side, it's like, you know, okay, I, I might be able to do okay, but you know, I don't know that I can pay my bills long term just doing this.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's the whole thing. And so, you know, it's like monetizing anything is going to be a challenge. And so that's the next step in, in figuring it all out now. And as we are zoomed to death (laughs) for work and for life, right. How do you make this box that we spend so much time on also a place of enjoyment? Right. You know, I think everybody should be getting smart TVs. So at least if you want to shoot something like my specials on Vimeo on demand, you can if you can mirror your TV, then you're watching an experience on your television rather than your laptop. Right. Yeah, for sure. So having those things and um happen I, I think are gonna be crucial for the way we do everything. And you know, making sure that if you're going to try to do performance piece or any kind of art through one of these streaming apps that are like a Zoomy kind of streaming app that it doesn't look like the meeting somebody spent all day in. You know, creating a background, creating an environment, creating a space where you utilize that um, is going to be crucial. Yeah.
0: Well, I want to ask you on the special too. One of the things that I really enjoyed about it, it it almost had a daily show kind of format to it where, you know, it was was topical jokes and, you know, you had graphics kind of accompanying the jokes uh, on a monitor next to you. But then midstream, there there's this interview portion. You bring in uh, Minneapolis Councilwoman Andrea Jenkins, uh, who was uh, the first black trans woman elected to public office. Uh, she represents George Floyd's district in Minneapolis. And it was a really great, deep conversation about, you know, all these issues that are happening for trans women, for black people, you know, all of it. And. I I just wonder, I guess, why I I don't think of an interview as being a typical part of a comedy special, I guess, but why did you think it was important to have Andrea's voice in there?
1: Right. Well, for me, I felt it was important for a couple of reasons. One, ain't nobody needs to hear about what happened to George Floyd from a white lady. (laughs) Right. And everybody needs to hear about the experience of. Folks and trans folks. And I really wanted to talk about Defund the Police and reimagining policing and community policing um, from somebody who I think is really smart and has some really great answers around doing that. Yeah. I also firmly believe that if your comedy is smart, you can drop in something serious in any space around what you're doing and get right back to it and do it. You know, it's not like I dropped it in a transitional spot or at the end. It's dead center in the middle of my special. And then I go right back into talking about some other serious things. And then, you know, it's it's like, there it is. And so for me, I just feel like if I'm going to say that I'm somebody who cares about what's happening in the world, cares about social issues, you know, is firmly believes that white supremacy is a thing. And that me as a white person in the world, I have to not just be racist. I have to be anti-racist, you know, all those tropes that we hear, but they're real. And that stuff is real to talk about 2020 and, and not center the experience of black folks and especially black trans folks who had record numbers of violence perpetrated against them in the same year, I think is, it do a disservice to saying you're somebody who re- to respond to the year. Yeah. So, and it was really important for me to have the right person to do that and being in my hometown and having this person who could really speak to the murder of a black man that changed the course of the conversation to have somebody who could really speak to that, but somebody who lives in the district represents the district and has been caring for the folks who were harmed, around that. um, I thought she was the perfect person.
0: Yeah. She made an interesting point, too, on defunding the police. The way that she framed it was refunding our communities. And I thought that was an important uh, way to talk about it.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly uh, such a great way to talk about it. You know, I often kid, you know, when people say, laughter is the best medicine. I'm like, actually, it's not. Would you ever call a comedian if you needed a heart transplant? You wouldn't. (laughs) So think of defund the police that way. It's like, you know what? Sometimes A cop isn't what you need, but it's the number you have. And so uh, when you call a number uh, and you need a mental health worker or you need somebody, a family counselor, or you need something that isn't somebody with a gun, why can't we expand how we do community safety and how we look at community safety? You know, Andrea makes excellent points that community safety means that the community is nurtured and cared about and has resources. In the community, so that the community is thriving and not forgotten, mm-hmm. right? And so, you know, that means clean water, that means healthy food, that means um, streets and schools that are tended to and cared for, of street lights that work, places for kids to go after school, places, you know, all of it. It means that you have a thriving community that you care about. And so, I think that creating that can mean um, where does that money come from? You know, if you have if you have less need for police. Then or a different need for police, then let's make that happen. You know, can can people be working on a police force and be solely mental health workers? And that's what they do. Sure. If that's how you want to have your police money go. But if you're just only law enforcement, then to me, that doesn't seem like it doesn't seem smart.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. I, I wonder the disconnect between some of those points, though, of like. I think most people, if you surveyed them, would agree that they want, you know, working streetlights or a safe playground or you know whatever it is, uh, you know, sidewalks in good repair. But if you ask them, do you think we should, you know, have fund the government? Should we have local government or state government or whatever? You know, there. I guess it comes from Reaganism, maybe, of that, like you know, the government's a bad thing. Like I, I, I just wonder why are we so divergent on those two ideals that you know, they inform each other. Like if you want civic services, you need to pay taxes. You need a government. And and people don't like the concept of government, even if they like the results of government.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'll never forget when my mom said, um, after the t- stock market crash, I don't think the taxpayers should have to bail out uh, the taxpayers. I think the government should or something like that. And I was like, <laughs> you are the government like that. What are you talking about? So yeah. I think people have a fundamental misunderstanding of uh, what their tax dollars go for and what the, what the socialisms that they enjoy are. Um, because there are many socialisms that, um, people really do enjoy, yeah. like the Medicare and the parks and right. the roads right. and the poli- and the cops and the everything else that they so richly, um, are attached to. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I think, uh, you know, I think it's it's a it's a rare occasion that we still teach civics and I think it's a real disservice because it's like if if people had a basic fundamental understanding of how government worked, they would even just fundamentally be able to identify a bald faced lie from a politician. Right. I promise I'll do this. You do not have the capacity to actually do that right. because I know how government works, you know what I mean? And I think that a lot of people just don't see that at all, and I think that's a that's a huge bummer.
0: Yeah. Well, and you talk in the special too about the need to confront the Karens in your family right now. <laughs> yeah. And like, yeah, practically, what does that look like? Have, have you had success doing that? Like, I, I I tend to be more in the you know, put your head down and just you know, it's going to blow over, but don't don't make waves. Camp, but you're you're advocating a more hands-on approach and and I feel like the moment deserves that but yeah. what does that actually look like
1: i think if you are going to invite people into your life that are black and brown and queer and you're their friend and you're going to take to the streets and scream black lives matter or fight for the rights of your queer friends or abortion rights or whatever your thing is if if you hear garbage in your house and you don't say anything to say that is simply not true you like my friend x or i'm i don't want to bring my friend x here because you have a belief system that you freely say that's not right about them and i love them and and what you're saying isn't true and what you're saying is harmful and if you don't correct the record they think that you don't believe in your stance there 's no ramifications to them saying things that are horrible, and like lamely, if you can 't defend the people you 've invited into your world and people you love and defend your belief system that you wake up and try to live every day to people who love you, then you 're just not truthful, and you actually are allowing. The Karenism to perpetuate because mm. that's who Karens are. Karens are people who go unchecked and then go out on the streets and say something to people and cause harm. Right. And those are unchecked relatives. And they're, they're the people in the grocery store screaming in Trader Joe's, and they're the people screaming at Black Bird Watchers, and they're the people who are screaming at little kids with a hot dog stand. Like, or you shouldn't be in my neighborhood. Like, if not you, telling your relatives that if they want a relationship with you, you have to really, um, you have to make some decisions about what the world you want to be in, and who your relatives are in the world. And I don't really care if I get I'm, I'm not screaming at people at holidays, but I will say that's incredibly cruel, and it's incredibly naive, and also. I've known you long enough to know that you do not have any equals in your life that don't look like you. Mm. You don't have black and brown people as peers, as mentors, as bosses, as any in a workspace, any, you don't have that in your world. And you are saying things about people that you've never met and that you don't know whose cultures you are keenly unaware of that perpetuate danger towards them when they are out in the world. Hmm. And that is not okay. That's not okay to me.
0: No, I, I agree with you and that's well said I think. It's uh if if not you to check it in your family, then who? It does it does go out into the world and it becomes a problem. I agree with you. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you sort of about the the marriage between comedy and current events and looking at, at some of your history, both with The Daily Show and with Air America, because I feel like in both cases that that was sort of your your vision, I guess, or, you know, your MO in those in those places and, and certainly continues today with your comedy of just trying to to figure out, you know, how do we talk about current events but with a comedic spin. And I don't see that happening on the right. Like there's not, you know, like Rush Limbaugh or Tucker Carlson or those guys, like they're not funny. They're angry all the time. Like, why do you think it's important, I guess, to marry comedy with with the news?
1: You know, I think it's interesting. For me, I feel like, and there's been studies done that say that people who are predisposed to right brain thinking respond to fear and you know, rage yep. and people with left brain thinking respond to exposing hypocrisy through humor and satire. I mean, I, it's just like someone did a study and that's the way it is. So for me, I feel like it's just what I do. It's not like, Oh, I'm going to get rich doing this. This yeah. is, this is the avenue with which I'm going to go down because it's, it's the hardest way to you're it, first of all, you're immediately alienating people who are not open to any kind of point of view. Right. And the powerful who use their power for evil are, you know, normally turn out to be conservatives. What? And so, um, you know, people like, well, why do you pick on both sides? I'm like, yeah, I do. I do pick on both sides when I see somebody being stupid or using their power for bad, you know, it's like, I used to get in trouble constantly when I would like, During I mean never forget when Obama got elected and people were like how are you gonna tell how are you gonna tell jokes about Obama I was like are you racist and they would be like whoa and I would be like well then why would you ask me how can I tell jokes about Obama he's a Democrat who came up through a corrupt system where everybody has money Um, he's picked Tim Geithner and Ben Bernanke to run his Treasury Department he is for droning he had some like weird ass ideas about like Syria. Like he's rife with political baggage with which I can talk about. What I hear you saying is a black man just got elected. How are you going to talk about that? Is are you going to talk about him being black? It's like no, I'm going to talk about him being a politician, (laughs) you know. And so, and then I'm also going to talk about people like you who just said that to me, (laughs) showing societies. Real relationship to having a black president and what it meant. You know, we elected a black guy, we're post racial. Oh, die in a fire. Are you high? What are you talking about? Like, you know, (laughs) so I think that, like, there's always going to be, for me, comedy is a way to drill down on issues that are like sort of hard to talk about to get to the emotional. Space of a big issue. I think so often people on the left will be so practical about, well, we know we're right. So don't fight back and don't just ignore them. It's like, no. And I think that's a terrible way to be. You know, I'm so sick of Democrats bringing a PowerPoint presentation to a knife fight. That's how (laughs) we lose constantly, right? Yeah. And so it's like, why don't we bring a knife to a knife fight? And that knife is humor. And I want to eviscerate bullies with and laugh at them and point at them, yeah. Because I and point out why they're flawed and they're just mean and they don't and they want to retain their bulliness and it's like that's their power and so I want to strip them of that using humor and so that's to me I think it's a it's been effective I think it's fun Um, I think it also gives those who have been victims of the bully. Um, an opportunity to gather an opportunity to feel like there is a posse of people who they're not alone. And when people are like, well, do you ever feel like you're just singing to the choir? I'm like, no, I don't. Because first of all, would you ever say to a butcher, why don't you sell fish? Like there's people that <laughs> like fish, you know? And it's like, cause I sell meat, right. you know, these are the jokes I tell and the choir always needs more songs. And especially when it comes to, you know, I'm an abortion rights advocate and no one talks about abortion at all. In fact, the left has been the most garbage when it comes to, can you not talk about that? Because it's going to get in the way of the things that are really important. And it's like, you know what, being denied the opportunity to uh, end a pregnancy because you can't do that. And it would destroy every path that someone has to self-determination is not a little thing. It's a huge thing. And maybe you should jump on board and understand why it is that access to uh, reproductive care is crucial to any conversation around human rights or yeah. advocacy around it. And right. so I'm here to educate you on that, friends. So um, yeah, so it's, it's, but I think it's, um, I think it's crucial. I think, you know, the old, you get more flies with honey. I think it's true. I think that if people are laughing when things are really hard, um, if you can get a genuine laugh out of a human, it means they haven't given up hope and and it's a really good barometer always and like I was one of the things in doing the special I was like I wrote a bunch of material that I have not tried I mean I recorded a special with untested material (laughs) on pieces of paper that I had said to myself in a room a couple of times. (laughs) And so I was going to find out whether or not, and granted my test audience was, you know, two different groups of 20, but to have them laughing at least made me feel like, all right, we are still alive. We're still fighting. We are going to find a way forward no matter what.
0: Right. I want to end talking about Abortion Access Force, which is the nonprofit that you're involved with. And you you touched on a little bit there, but what is it about abortion? Why has it become such a polarized issue? Why is the rhetoric so messed up around it?
1: Uh, I think it's always been that way. Part of it is that we have never come to terms in, in America with our own sexuality with anything to do with um, the empowerment of people, what a family looks like, hot, choosing families, all of that. I also think that for years we've been on the defensive around what it means to, in the landscape of pregnancy options, to actually talk about abortion in a natural, healthy way. Of We have given pregnancy the same reverence that we do actual born people. Yeah. And so it's like a pregnancy to me, and this is a radical thing, but a pregnancy to me is defined by the person that is pregnant and its value should be placed by the person that is pregnant. If that person has a pregnancy that is wanted and they're excited, then you go ahead and call that pregnancy a baby and you go ahead and name it and do it and take it and honor it all you want. Yeah. If somebody is pregnant And that pregnancy is unintended, unwanted, killing that person. Um, That pregnancy should be um, taken care of in the way that that person wants to. That person should be able to have an abortion and not feel bad about it, right? And so we use the language of the right. We are on the defensive. We use the rhetoric of the right. And part of what we do in this organization is to say, let's everyone take a breath and let's have hard conversations around abortion and unpack why it is you feel the way you feel. How you have self-examined to get to that point, why do you need to say things like, well, you know, no one's pro-abortion. People are pro-choice. And it's like, no, people are pro-abortion. And when you say no one's pro-abortion or no one's for abortion, what that does is makes people who've had abortions feel judged and shamed so that they don't know where they can turn to actually talk about their experience and, and doubt whether or not they'll get support for it makes those that provide the care feel that they're looked at and judged in thinking that um, they're doing something that's terrible. And it also creates these camps of good abortions and bad abortions. You know, if you come forward with a horrible story about how you got pregnant and what you went through, you get to have an abortion because that's the good kind. If you're somebody who, had an unintended pregnancy and and can't afford another kid or this kid or had other plans for your life. And so you need an abortion. You really made some bad choices. Right. And so those things are just patently unfair to place those hurdles and obstacles in front of somebody who is just trying to live their life. You know, no one ever got pregnant from a vibrator. (laughs) And so when we talk about all these ways that we demonize, unintended pregnancy. It always falls on the person who gets pregnant, you know? And so, um, I just really want to call out the lies around the science and health around it. And so we, we do with videos. And then I also want to try to destigmatize abortion and help support those providers so that they feel like that someone is in their corner. There's somebody who can defend their work. Um, because before our organization came along, literally providers were the people providing the care, fighting the laws and having to correct the record when the right would come up with these wackadoodle ideas about what abortion is. And I was like, I myself have had abortions have said like, people who provide abortion should be able to provide abortion and should have the community support they need to do. So they shouldn't have to do all of those other things. I can take that load off of them by correcting the record and by, uh, you know, supporting and trying to fight against the legislation that comes forward. So that's what we do.
0: I feel like that is such an uphill battle, though. Mainly, uh, to me, where my head goes is just the evangelical community and the Christian right. And, you know, that has become their issue that, like, people voted for Trump completely holding their nose, at least in 16, and I'm sure probably again in 20, with the expectation that, well, maybe we'll get some some sympathetic Supreme Court justices and overturn Roe. And like, I just, I don't understand how that can be the thing that you're willing to hang everything on. Like, everybody's okay with everything, you know, kids in cages and, you know, just repressive immigration policies, all this stuff. But if they can, if they can make abortion illegal, they're fine. Like, I, I just, I don't understand that way of thinking.
1: Well, I think the I think think of it this way. Let's replace abortion with the word X, right? And here's what I pose to you. If we could ban X, we as white supremacists could retain all of our power. Right? Mm. F- forcing pregnancy and birth and those roles onto that the uh, the whole of society to disempower them completely. Yeah. Not only to disempower them from um from being in spaces that could make change, right? Because that's part of it, you know, f- forcing people to having them resent the families they've been forced to have and therefore relegating them to be horrible people. Hmm. Right? So creating them as you can't be in, in the titans of industry they are going to make change and create equality. We're also going to make you resent the role we've given you so that when you raise children, you are demonized for being awful. So you're creating two narratives that retain patriarchy and white supremacy profoundly. So now that X becomes abortion.
0: Hmm.
1: And there you have it. So that's why we need to get everybody on board because it's really just the the best way to retain white supremacy and patriarchy is to make sure that you are not in control of your own reproductive destiny.
0: With uh, with Amy Coney Barrett on the court now and, you know, just, what are your thoughts of where we're what we're looking at for the next, you know, I don't know, five, 10 years?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm one of those people that says expand the court. If yeah. you're going to play this game, expand the court. Um, And I feel like where we do have control and where we need to understand where our control lies and work to make sure that we can maintain some semblance of sanity is that with the lower court stacked, with the Supreme Court now stacked, it is our job to make sure that we are keenly aware and keenly proactive in our own state and local governments so that we are not electing people who are going to be passing these whacked out laws that go through a, these the court system and land at the Supreme Court yeah. because all of these laws that are have the potential to overturn Roe come out of our state legislatures. And so that is what we need to be thinking about as citizens always is to, right now, Keep it out of the system that will keep co-signing on it and and put it into some sort of permanence. So that's our jobs as citizens is to really pay attention to these um, state and local elections because they matter.
0: Yeah. And and that matters on the abortion issue, certainly. But I think that, you know, you can globalize that th- that sentiment, too. You know, oh,
1: my God, when it comes to LGBTQ rights, when it comes to, you know, Policing, when it comes to schools, when it comes to everything, you know, you look what happened when our federal government said, fuck it, we're not going to have a federal COVID guideline or policy. States have to figure it out. Look what happens. Yeah. You know, and so if everything's going to be lobbed down to the states, you want to make sure that your state doesn't have, you know, Ron DeSantis or Greg Abbott or, you know, Christy Noem yes, as your governor, because ain't going to go well for you, you know? And then in, in the normalizing of, of thing, it, you know, it should never be normal to think that you are better than wearing a mask. It should never be normal to demonize someone for having an abortion. It should never be normal to put kids in cages. It should never be normal that, you know, parents, have to educate their kids when they weren't trained to, yeah. you know, these things aren't normal. You know, we have to make things that are healthy, normal, and we have to demonize things that are real, are the things that are really taking away people's rights. So, yeah. you know, it's, it's up to us. It, I know yeah. it's putting a lot of faith in, in people to want to get up and really care. But I've seen it, you know, and I've seen, you know, citizen activism, uh, you know, we I saw it in 2018. I saw it in 2020. I saw I've seen neighborhoods and people develop and people activate in a way they hadn't before. And that's not because the Democratic Party was great. Yeah. That's because citizens took and created grassroots movements on their own with their neighbors and made change.
0: Yeah. People are paying attention now. And I think yeah. they realize- it matters and it affects their lives. You know, we went through a a long period of apathy or, or, uh, or defeatism. I don't know, you know, some combination of the two of them, but it does feel like people are more energized now. And yeah, I hope, I hope there's, I hope there's a pot of gold at the end of this rainbow.
1: I know. Right. I mean, let's hope that pot of gold is like a planet that can be saved and, um, a vaccine that works and, a new normal that if it involves us wearing masks and doing things so that we can get back to, um, being in crowds and carrying on, um, that people understand that that's okay. And that we do it.
0: All right, there we go. Liz Winstead. That was awesome. I love just talking current events and stuff with her. I, I, had thought going into this conversation that we might talk more about the daily show. I'm a big daily show fan. And, you know, I've interviewed a lot of people that have worked there at this point and would have loved to have gone down that rabbit hole for a while, but there's just, there wasn't a place for it. And honestly, I mean, that was what, 25 years ago, something like that. I'm much more interested in what she's doing now. I think her comedy special was great. I think her work with abortion access force is awesome. So if you want to learn more about both those things, view the comedy special, and see what she's doing with Abortion Access Force, go to aaforce.org, aaforce.org. All right, I do have one more show before I'm going to take a little break for Christmas. That is going to be next Monday. I'm going to be talking to Anthony Rudell. He is the music director at our local classical station here in Boston, WCRB, They're actually part of the bigger WGBH media organization that, of course, is the big public TV powerhouse. They also have an NPR station, and they own WCRB. So he's part of that whole world. His father was the conductor at the New York City Opera, and Anthony's worked in classical music radio for many, many, many years. Started on air on classical stations in New York at, like, age 22 or 23 or something And uh, now he's been running the station here in Boston for a long time. And he actually, it's a really fascinating conversation about the radio industry and how he has taken a rock and roll station approach or a pop station approach to programming classical music. And I'll tell you, I didn't know he was doing any of that before I started talking to him, but I have noticed on my own just tuning in a lot more to the classical radio station here in Boston over the last, you know, five plus years, it has really become one of my main go-tos, especially when I'm in the car, but you know, even in my wood shop or in the kitchen or whatever, it's uh, it's kind of always there in the background. And a large part of that is because of active steps that Anthony has taken to bring listeners in. And it's a station we get here over the air in Boston, but you can listen to it on the internet as well. So I've got Anthony coming up on Monday And then next Thursday, I will be taking the day off for Christmas, the 24th. So I will not talk to you on there. But I always have the newsletter as well. Make sure you sign up for that. I've actually seen some really great growth in the last couple of weeks. And I'm really excited about what I'm doing over there as well. And just hearing from you guys and knowing that you're appreciating it and enjoying it too. If you haven't yet signed up, go to heathrosella.com. Enter your email address there and you will get the newsletter in your inbox. This Sunday's edition, will have recaps with today's interview with Liz Winstead and also this past Monday's interview with Erin Carmon. So make sure you check that out. Make sure you hit the subscribe button. All those things, leave a rating, leave a review. That stuff really actually does help. If you're an Apple podcast right now, do it. Hit the little five star thing. Write a quick review. I'm Matt Heath Rossella on Twitter and Instagram. I will talk to you guys on Monday. Stay safe.